Welcome to the discussion, simplifying technology platforms and systems in government, sponsored by ServiceNow. Here's today's moderator, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion. My guests today are Lauren Knausenberger, the Chief Information Officer for the Department of the Air Force, Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of IT and Chief Information Officer for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Jeff Maloney, the Head of IT Operations for Product and Solutions Marketing at ServiceNow. Let me set just a little context for our conversation today. The COVID-19 pandemic didn't invent the idea that anyone could be a coder, but over the last year, many recognized that introducing new and urgent capabilities or expanding the existing ones was much easier when they didn't have to know how to code. The concept of low-code or no-code development spurred digitization efforts across the government and the world. Gartner, the market research company, projects that the total low-code development technology market will reach almost $14 billion in 2021, up almost 23% from 2020. Gartner says the surge in remote development during the COVID-19 pandemic will continue to boost low-code adoption despite ongoing cost optimization efforts. And that means Gartner expects the use of low-code application platforms to remain the largest component of this low-code development technology market through 2022, increasing nearly 30% from 2020 to reach $5.8 billion in 2021. It's a lot of numbers, a lot of spending, but really, let's, let's, let's really get into the point where coding is something almost any employee can do. And to do that, agencies need to standardize development processes through DevSecOps. They need to understand their application inventories, ensure their IT and acquisition workforces are prepared for this digital transformation. And of course, a key piece to truly moving toward the democratization of their digital transformation is the data. Both the ability to access relevant data and the ability to understand what it means are key factors to this effort. So how can agencies prepare for the future? Well, that's where our panelists come in. And once again, my guests are, are Lauren Knausenberger, the Chief Information Officer for the Department of the Air Force, Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of IT and the Chief Information Officer for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Jeff Maloney, the Head of IT Operations for Product and Solutions, and Jeff Maloney, the Head of IT Operations for Product and Solutions Marketing at ServiceNow. Rajiv, let, let me start with you because digital transformation, the pandemic, all of this stuff is really something that this, the CMS has really had to really change their approach over the last year, but, but much more broader than just the pandemic. So let's talk about this idea of democratizing digital transformation. How are you doing this? What role is, is this idea of citizen coders, employee coders playing in, in the goal to meet your mission? Um, thank you, Jason. So, um, you know, when, when it comes to digital transformation, a pretty significant part of digital transformation for us is also thinking about how do we upscale our workforce? Uh, as, as you probably well know, a pretty significant part of the work we do happens with the help of our vendor partners. So a lot of the coding that happens, well, you know, let's say we want to do a system, we'll contract it out, we'll get uh, somebody to help us build that system. But how do we ensure that the systems we are building are being built according to the standards and the processes we want to follow? Are they using DevSecOps? Are they building it with the appropriate uh, guardrails for the cloud and all of those kind of things. So it was necessary for us that our staff, our federal staff, had a reasonable understanding of all of these technologies. So we've actually gone through, and we're still in the process of going through, um, you know, the process of how do we how do we bring our staff up a notch or two so they have a decent understanding of all of these technologies, all of the processes. So when we engage with our vendor partners, we are actually having a good conversation and we're building products that really are gonna make a difference to our beneficiaries and providers, you know, our stakeholders that engage with CMS. So what, as I was saying, one of the major pushes for us is upskilling. The next thing is, well, a lot of the work that happens, as you well know, happens with, well, I need, I need, uh, let's say, we're going to go through an IT governance process for a system. Um, people know how it needs to be done. They'll contact each other through email, et cetera. Uh, but if you want to go to the next level where we have more efficiencies, you want to use products that uh, enable workflow so that when somebody wants to go through an IT governance process, there's a workflow and you know the steps to go through, you know how much time it's going to take, here I am, what's my next step and so on. So we've been started down that path as well, um, looking at our processes, re-engineering them where there was some kind of inefficiency and then putting them into workflow systems like ServiceNow and others, of course. 
So that's those are like a couple of things that we're working on in addition to many others that we can talk about as we move further on. We will definitely talk about the workforce later on, but let me back up the, the mm-hmm. this idea of governance, looking at processes, re-engineering them. Yeah. Is the idea behind that basically to understand how they work today, how you can improve them and where the, this idea of democratization, this low code, no code approach can fit in? Yes, it is. It is that. And also looking at our processes uh, and rethinking them, as, as you well know, for example, any system that is uh, has to go has to go into production, really has to go through the uh, ATO process or the authority to operate. And we started looking at that and saying, well, the way it is currently, it's often looked at, you look at an ATO after you're almost done building a system. And of course, people spend quite a bit of time, um, you know, talking about what are the controls, how they satisfy them. What if we rethink about, rethink the ATO process that is and bring it all the way to the left. So before you start building a system, I as a developer or a business owner should be aware of what are the responsibilities that we have in terms of security requirements. So security is not an afterthought, but it's something you think about before. So that's how you bring security into DevOps. And you know we talk about things like DevSecOps. It is taking the ATO and all the controls that go with it. So making sure that we are focusing on the intent of compliance, not just on compliance. That's sort of, um, that's part of the re-engineering of processes that I'm talking about that we're trying to do. And of course, as I said, all this, all this does get enabled by using low-code, no-code products that help us build the workflow. So when somebody starts building a system, they know upfront, well, I here are the things that CMS requires. This is what is required of me for an ATO when I get done. And if I'm using uh, a gold image that CMS provides for the cloud, uh, maybe I'm already satisfying, you know, let's say 100 controls out of the 400 that I need to satisfy. So again, making bringing us a, a, a level of transparency uh, to the process and moving all of these things way to the left as opposed to thinking about these things when you're almost done with the system. Lauren, what Rajiv said, I hear a lot of the Air Force has been doing that for the last few years. I know we recently talked with uh, your folks in Platform One and Cloud One, Nick Shalon, regarding the, the efforts there. Walk me through the, the democratization, digital transformation effort that the Air Force is going through and where you are at, where are you at today? Sure. So. We've had a couple of years of um, trying to uh, democratize more and more. Um, our software factories have just propagated. Um, and we've had a lot of success. Um, at this point, though, we're we're almost starting to say, okay, you know, we have so many different software factories that we almost have to kind of reel it in a little bit and, and give more uh, guidance and governance around what types of tools we're using for what. And also, um, if you have different teams working similar problems or different similar problem areas in an area of declining spend, how do you prioritize? So we're kind of on the other end of democratization where we're maybe bringing in um, a little more rigorous form of, uh, of government in some ways. But you know the idea is still to democratize, but to do it in a slightly more disciplined way. So um, a lot of times folks were using no-code, low-code uh, solutions because they just, we didn't buy a commercial product that they needed. You know, And so doing a better job of understanding what are the end user's needs and then not having to occur credit those things over and over again, deploying them into cloud one. Um, And we are working now on um, just creating a more robust, I'll say service catalog, um, more of a Netflix model service catalog where you can say, okay, you know, this is the product I need and this is the plan that I need and keep it very simple, simple enough for, you know, your average airman, your average consumer to go in and say, okay, well, I need my Netflix on four screens. So I'm going to go with this model Um, and, and, or I'm more comfortable with this lower cost and so I'm going to go with the baseline version. Um, and so we're, we're hoping that that will make it easier for people to adopt commercial tools first, um, and then to look at developing their only solutions, their own solutions where maybe we we shouldn't be already relying on the commercial world. 
And then we also have to make sure that, um, you know, there are some places where we want airmen to solve their own problem right there at the pointy end of the spear. There are other places where we want a, um, an established software factory with a lot of um, domain knowledge, so to speak, um, to be working with the warfighters to develop software that is going to be used by a larger number of people. And so um, we're, we're also looking at kind of giving better guidance around what, what is the sorting hat? You know, how do I how do I look at something and very easily tell, you know, do I need a commercial solution? Do I need to work with a software factory? Or is this a really great place for me to be using low code, no code? And um, and at that point, you know, really establishing, you know, if I'm Airman Joe, Airman Jane, and I want to um, to begin coding, there are a couple of places I can go today. And some people know exactly how it works. You know, some people have, uh, you know, the Marauders map, since I guess we're on a Harry Potter analogy kick today already with the sorting hat. You know, and they can they can find exactly what they need because they're they're linked in with the community, but not everyone is clued on where it is, and that that also kind of brings back that that service catalog, um, you know, concept, the 21st century IT store of sorts, um, where everybody knows where to go, they can see by category of solution what they need, and they can get access to it easily. And I think that also will help on a lot of the um, the security side too that Rajiv mentioned, um, because we do accredit things over and over again, and we think that it's going to be different in this environment versus that. So, um, you know, luckily we have a pretty robust cloud at this point um, that is centrally managed. And so, you know, you credit it once in the cloud, you give everyone access to it and you allow them to buy it in a way that has been pre-negotiated. Um, and that just solves a lot of problems. So, so with us, we're democratizing sometimes by just giving people access to what they need and sometimes by reeling it in a little bit and saying, okay, what you think you need in this case isn't what you might need. And so let's help you to determine better what will actually meet your requirements. A bit like uh, Steve Jobs with the iPhone. You know, if he said, hey guys, you know, what do you need? We never would have come up with the iPhone. Luckily, Steve Jobs, you know, was a visionary and was able to, to give us something beyond our imagination. So we're working with, uh, with our commercial partners every day to make sure that we are not stuck within the confines of only what we can imagine today. I'm glad you brought up the Harry Potter reference because I was about to and I would have felt weird because uh, I'm the only one in the world who hasn't read the books or seen the movies and my family reminds me of that every day. But uh, talk a little bit about this idea of reeling in the software factories a little bit, this idea of ensuring that there's a prioritization and ensuring that 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 obviously we're not quote unquote willy nilly. So uh, how are you doing that? So right now um, we're working on putting, so we have some memos that will go out soon um, that establish a number of different enterprise solutions for um, enterprise cloud, as well as for the DevSecOps um, platforms. And so bringing people into common platforms, that's, that's one. Two, asking all of our software factories to join our community of practice. Some are in, some are probably completely unaware. Um, and to basically um, say through a data call of sorts, um, you know, we are a software factory, for instance, like Kessel Run, and we focus on the Air Operations Center. We are Space Camp. We focus on providing space capability to Space Force. We are Bespin. We are focused on the Business Systems Enterprise. We are Tesseract. We are focused on the Logistics Enterprise. And then you have all sorts of different people that are hitting different parts of those things around, nibbling at the edges. Um, some of them are working really well together naturally, but um, you know, we found out last year that we had 10 different flight scheduling apps that were all in progress. Um, you know, you find out other, other times where, you know, there's someone who has been passionately working nights, weekends away from family because they needed a capability and they were, you know, willing to like bleed for their unit. And then, you know, either one of, one of two things happens, either someone in another unit has already built that and they could be leveraging it and not giving up that time, or they leave the unit and there's nobody in the unit that can maintain that code. And so another thing that we're doing is through a, a group called um, Airmen Coders, we're bringing all of those lay coders together too and those smaller software factories and, um, and really working in a more inner source manner, sometimes even committing to the open source community a lot through platform one actually. Um, and that's allowing people to naturally find each other and naturally get help. And then, you know, something exists, I can just pull it, you know, I can see it in the repo, um, you know, and, um, you know, I can find other people who maybe when I leave my unit, there's someone at another unit who's already using the app that can help maintain the code or just another airman can help maintain the code over time. And then, you know, the day that it stops being maintained is the day that it's probably no longer relevant because no one's in there helping to keep it up um, in that inner source um, 
collaboration model. So that, that's really what I mean by reel it in. Um, it's not to, to stop innovation in any way, but it's to help people do it with other innovators because that's how we're really gonna get velocity. I think the success the Air Force has had, no one thought you were gonna stop it, but I think, yes, putting some 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 rigor around it to to ensure that you not have ten different flight applications is is key. Jeff, jump in and react a little bit to what you heard from Rajiv and Lauren. Two maybe different perspectives, but heading down the same highway. Yeah, yeah. Um, and thanks, Jason. And um, it's a good conversation. It's exactly what we see in our markets. Um, what we see as a major uptick in these low code and no code type capabilities and requests on our ServiceNow platform. We have our creator workflows that helps manage all of that. So to Rajiv's point is we see a lot of these low code, no code type capabilities or solutions really supporting various processes or workflows. And they can be something as simple as just a basic approval workflow that we used to do manual. So we're helping scale some of the efforts by putting in the workflows and the processes on our low and no code capabilities. But as Lauren points out, we still have these, call them software factories, call them more maybe professional development environments that happen off our platform, but we need to keep the governance and guardrails that IT really can put structure around um, an agency and organization. We need to have those guardrails and support the software factories and the speed that they require, the reason that they're there, but put them in the right governance model that we as IT have, as both Rajiv and Lauren pointed out, for things like security. And Rajiv mentioned shifting left, right? So we see the need to understand security and vulnerability and risk early on in those coding cycle, whether it's a low code aspect or more of the professional development software type aspects in order to support improper activities or code going into our production environments, whether they're in the cloud or whether in an on-premise environment. So that shift left is key to us as well, where we're putting those right guardrails and config files in policy engines up front to help the team scale and get what they need to deliver in the production environments, whether it's through low code, just basic processes and workflows, or more of those sophisticated software factories, as Lauren points out, that's maybe creating something bigger like a digital product for, for an agency or an organization. Jeff, we're gonna to jump to break in just a second, but do you get a sense that the governance piece is kind of, seems to come second and the, the excitement over, oh, we can do this, we can build it, I can meet a need this quickly, that comes first. I mean, similar to what maybe the, the Air Force has experienced, again, Lauren, I'm not gonna pick on you, but the 10 flight applications, right? Flight schedule applications. It was a great idea, but somebody <laughs> just went off and didn't check because maybe there's a, there's an excitement versus governance. Yeah, yeah, that, there is. And uh, how we catch that is really in that more, it's called the professional environment, that plan, the build, the operating service. We capture that in the plan phases, right? If teams have visibility into what is planned or what was already been previously delivered, we should hopefully stop some of those, you know, multiple applications from kind of going into the environment. So we do see sort of both a sense of urgency and the excitement as sometimes overcoming the need for governance, but Hopefully we can capture that in the planning stages and visibility of everything that's out there in the landscape. But when it does enter, hopefully we have the right checks in that building, that coding, that low no, that lower no code environment to stop any of those poor issues from entering. And, and again, it's, it's probably not the end of the world to clean it up. I and mean, we're not talking about like, like we talked about cloud sprawl and you've, in the past, we've talked about other kinds of sprawl, data center sprawl. It's a lot different with low code and no code. I, I can only imagine. Lauren, you'll, you'll tell me if I'm wrong on that one, right? <laughs> Oh, of course. I, I just wanted to add one uh, one comment, and that is that you know some of the some of the sprawl, so to speak, is, is actually kind of good and healthy and needed um, because you know even with the ten flight apps, that was ten teams actually that were learning to code for the first time and had a really great use case that they were passionate about. And so I think to some extent, you know, it's worth it for education if you're doing this for like for low, low dollars, we're talking low investment. Um, and some teams quite frankly, may continue to, to develop and try things for education. And we may end up using the things that they develop as prototypes for future things that we, that we develop more professionally through our, our formal software factories. So, so there is definite benefit to be gained at that. And I think that the, uh, you know, winning is when you can find that, that right balance in a resource constrained environment where everything that you're doing is adding a lot of value. Yeah, All right, let's here. take a quick break. Rajiv, we're going to hold up. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll, we'll catch back up with you. You're listening to the panel discussion, Simplifying Technology Platforms and Systems in Government, sponsored by ServiceNow on Federal News Network. 
This past year saw the digitization of government service massively accelerated. The goal of digital transformation is deliver intuitive, efficient, and secure services to employees and citizens. ServiceNow delivers cloud-based service management and operation solutions built on the Now platform. ServiceNow helps federal IT leaders gain greater visibility into systems and data to reimagine work within their agency, foster best practices, and develop a faster, better way to achieve their mission. Learn more. Visit servicenow.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, Simplifying Technology Platforms and Systems in Government, sponsored by ServiceNow on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Lauren Knausenberger, the Chief Information Officer for the Department of the Air Force, Rajiv Upal, Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of IT and CIO for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Jeff Maloney, the Head of IT Operations for Product and Solutions Marketing at ServiceNow. Rajiv, in the last segment, we were talking a little bit about um, this idea of governance and ensuring that there's not, if you will, low-code, no-code sprawl, if you will. Walk me through a little bit about how CMS is ensuring that you're not to the point where it's it's too many things are happening and there's not enough, if you will, control, but you're also not, if you will, suppressing innovation. Yeah, uh, great question. Thanks, Jason. Um, in just in the past, in the last segment, as Lauren was talking about, how do you reel things in? Um, so one of the things that we are trying and piloting is we created what in a sense, it's a group of folks that we have called navigators. And the what their job really is that when people come to the Office of Information Technology saying, hey, we, we want to be, we want to build this system, because for most uh, IT systems that are getting built at CMS, they need to go through a governance and an intake process. And when they come in, so we know at that point, well, this is what they're about to do. And this is, these are the set of technologies they're going to use. That's the, that's the path they're going to go down. That's where we are trying to see if we can engage the navigators in helping this team choose the best platforms, the best technologies, whatever it might be. Sometimes they're doing, let's say, a left, uh, they're going to migrate to the cloud. And how do you migrate to the cloud? It could be a simple lift or shift, lift and shift, that is or there's various levels of uh, you know, re-architecture and then migration to the cloud. So helping them uh, figure all those things out. So that's, an ex that's something that we are trying because it helps not in just in that case, but there are many other cases when we have pockets within CMS, they're saying, well, we'd like to use, for example, artificial, artificial intelligence to try out on this application. Like let's say, how do we help process comments for public comments for rulemaking. Um, can we use AI for that? Um, so our goal here again is if we have this group of people who uh, have enough of a, a knowledge base, it's not just the people knowledge, they of course would have to use systems also that contain that knowledge, but they can help navigate all the folks who are trying to build systems, helping them pick the best uh, technologies and architectures, et cetera, as we move forward. So that's one of the um, uh, ways that we help. We're, we're trying to see if that's going to work in the long term uh, and how that goes forward. So that's one of the things I'm doing. And the other thing I just wanted to comment, um, as we talked about low code, no code, and using workflows for governance, one of the driving factors. So there were really two reasons why we went down that road. Of course, one, we talked about that. We want to have a structured way of moving through a certain set of steps for governance. But even just as important is when you have a workflow system, it enables us to capture data. So when somebody is building a system and they're, let's say they have to go through the 508 compliance process um, or some other compliance process, the ATO process, for example, if, if one, when we have the workflow systems, it helps us capture data. So when somebody came in, let's say for five word compliance, did they get it done in two weeks, a day or two days? The capturing that data is really valuable because then we can go back and see where are the bottlenecks in our processes and how do we need to modify our system? So I think it's a combination of, yes, of course, we don't have to do a lot of coding to set up processes, but beyond that, it also helps us to constantly evaluate how we are doing on our processes and re-engineer them and rejigger them. Roughly how many navigators you have? Give me just a little bit more background. It's uh, my guess is we are somewhere in the neighborhood, about 
10 to 15 people, um, you know, on various different aspects. There are some folks who are focused on the cloud. There are other folks on AI and product management, human-centered design. And so it's kind of spread across various things that they specialize in. Okay. No, it's great. It's a great idea. I think it's something that a lot of agencies could, could benefit from, or at least uh, maybe copy from you all if you have some success with it. I think one of the keys, and I think Rajiv hit upon it, is this idea that you got to know what you have, you got to know what's being worked on, and you got to know what, what shape it's in. And I think this comes back to understanding the software, the in inventory, and then also, uh, okay, what, how do we rationalize the number of applications? So I'll just open it up to the group a little bit. Uh, is that something that you all are in the middle of, have started? Jeff, are you seeing this from customers that they, that's a starting point to get toward a low-code, no-code platform, or is it all happening in parallel? Yeah, we see it really all happening in parallel. <laughs> so, um, and I'll discuss Rajiv's point about that demand management, that intake, which is a big part of this app economy that we're living in. Uh, but really what we see is from an application perspective is twofold. Is One is just doing that basic inventory where you just get application sprawl. We need to get our hands around an understanding of all the applications that we have in an environment, right? And getting this work off of spreadsheets or bespoke databases. So we centralize all those applications. But then we're also seeing it kind of on the more sophisticated side where we're tying those applications to an agency usage or an organization usage of how individuals in the agency or organization are leveraging those applications to do something with them, whether it's for the citizens or whether it's for some go-to-market function, marketing, sales, customer service, et cetera. But not only do we tie those business aspects to the applications. We're also tying the infrastructure and operations aspect to those applications as well. So when you need to perform some sort of action, as Rajiv said, sort of move things in a cloud, how does that how does that manage or manipulate the technology aspects of those applications? So we do basic inventory management to manage application economy, and then we do more sophisticated aspects to understand how those apps are impacting an organization or the agencies, and also from a technology perspective, the decisions you need to make in IoT, how or, or information and operations, how those technology decisions are going to impact your application landscape. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on this one too. So, so we've actually done um, a lot of pretty good analysis on what we have, but I think historically um, across the Department of Air Force and Department of Defense in general, um, there's been more of a, a lift and shift kind of strategy in place. Hey, today I have 400 logistics applications. Let me um, kind of pare them down and I'll create maybe 10 logistics applications or I'll merge a couple of them into my existing. And I think where I see um, kind of the path going now is, is taking a little bit more of a look, not so much at what do I have in terms of you know, the database fields and doing business exactly as we do today, but looking at what are those capabilities that I need and how can I actually do more to buy um, from the commercial providers that do this um, you know, best in class. And there'll be some things that we do that are legitimately different where maybe we do have to build a capability on, on the mission side, a lot of it will have to build. Um, but on the business side, you know, we should be asking ourselves, why can't we purchase that inventory system or that personnel system. And, and a lot of times, um, you know, people think that our requirements are completely different because maybe our, maybe our table has a few more rows in it, you know, um, you know, just, uh, you know, or a couple extra personnel types and we think that we need a completely different system. So, um, you know, so I think there's some education pieces in there as we make decisions. Um, we also still, unfortunately, um, I, I was in a meeting, you know, only a few weeks ago where we have some folks that are doing, you know, really great work. I was actually, I was so excited to hear about it because they were adopting a platform that I really love, a best in class commercial product. And um, a lot of the conversation was like, wow, you know, they, I asked why it was taking quite so long. And they said, well, you know, it took those guys a really long time to figure out how we do business. And, you know, we got to make sure that, you know, these commercial guys that they can adapt to, to the way that we do business. And, you know, and that's kind of when we face palm a little bit, because, you know, the whole point was to learn how to do business from the commercial folks that are doing this every day and that have built that process into that product. Um, and so I think that, you know, we'll see more of that, that tide turning toward adopting the process with the, um, with the product, um, trying to get out of our own way there. And then, you know, I think, uh, I think we have a lot of work that we can do on the mission side, um, honestly, um, where, you know, we have a lot of disparate systems, even disparate networks 
that that probably you know over time we can start to deliver some really great capability um, with a great user experience and um, have our warfighters being able to to work a little bit smarter on certain things um, rather than having to you know work work quite so hard with a lot of manual process today. So so definitely a lot of um, a lot of opportunity for growth in this area. It's a great example of. Well, we it just took those industry people so long to adopt our processes. I understand the, the 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 pain. We were, I was talking just the other day with some acquisition folks about this idea. Well, how did you go from four weeks from four months to four weeks? Was it requirements, requirements, requirements? And they said partly that, but also more than you know, understanding how industry works. Uh, Jeff, I'm gonna since you're our representative from industry, let's put you on the spot. Uh, how do you ensure that Lawrence folks, Rajiv's folks, whomever you're talking to in government? understands that there's a, there's a little bit of give and take on both sides, but but probably more give on the government side than take on your side, meaning taking their requirements. Uh, if I understand the, the question correctly, you're just looking at how we understand the processes that an agency is, is, yeah. is creating. Yeah. Meaning meaning that you don't do what, what Lauren just described, where, where someone says to you, this is what we need, and you change your product because it becomes... A, a, a GOTS pro process now or, or, or a, a customized service now because that's going to cost more. It's going to be harder to keep, uh, upkeep, harder to secure. Yeah. You, know the, you know the drill, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. There always has to be a give and take, right? Because not everybody can kind of adhere to the letter of the law and a process maybe that we design in our application. So that's where we work with, um, you know, companies, um, you know, in the private or public sector to understand what really are our requirements, help them understand here is our process that we have out of the box. Where is the delta and what do we need to do to configure our solution to help meet that? that organization's you know, process or workflow, whatever they're doing. But our key is our platform is also have the capability to configure to meet that organization's or agency's demands, right? Everything shouldn't adhere to a specific process, right? It's not like VAT in Italy, which is going to be consistent across you know, every, every company out there. There has to be a give and take where we have a good process out of the box, but we can also configure it to meet whatever the demand is from the, from the company. Do you guys think though that maybe maybe there should be a little bit more pushback on that? Because you know we love to configure things, and by the time we're done configuring, you know we've lost a year and we've turned it into our old system. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so how do you help customers to to not fall into the same traps, the same reasons that they called you in the first place? Um, you know, to do something new and come up with a better process. Um, how do you how do you push back effectively on that and help us uh, help save us from ourselves? Yeah, yeah. There's always um, a little bit of pushback, but that's from a human aspect, right? Because we, we, in essence, want to say, okay, well, we've done it like this before. We kind of continue to want to do that. And that's when our experts need to say, well, look, here is how the, here we see this process in 10 like agencies, right? And here is how they're running this particular process. So maybe let's learn from how that process is organized across those other 10 agencies, sort of meet in the middle. And when we do need to meet in the middle, let's make sure that those configurations don't put anybody in a bad situation a year or two down the line where they can't, you know, reconfigure those configurations to do something within the agency, that we have the right boundaries around configurations where you don't get stuck from upgrading, for example. And Chief, jump in. Uh, yes, uh, thanks, Jason. I, I was just going to mention one thing that we have been focusing quite a bit on is the whole human-centered design aspect. And what we have realized is that often, um, you know, our processes are there and they've been there for a while, but when you start looking at them using some of the tools and techniques that human-centered design brings in, um, once our staff gets educated on that and we start to go and talk to our customers, and when I talk about customers, um, some of our customers, you know, for CMS obviously is our beneficiaries, the American citizens and the providers, of course, going and talking to them, understanding their pain points is very important. But if I'm looking at uh, the Office of Information Technology, often our customers are internal CMS uh, components, but it's just as equally important that we go talk to them, see what their pain points are and understanding those pain points and then after you understand those pain points to look at our processes and see, okay, are, are the processes that we have today truly addressing the pain points our customers have? And that's actually been a major shift 
in the way we do things and the way we uh, that has helped us change our processes. You know, but when we talk about when I was talking about earlier the ATO process, you know, you when we went out and talked to our customers, we heard the pain that they felt. They said, "Well, I finished my system, and then I'm not so sure when I can move to production because there's uncertainty as to how long the ATO process might take." And when we start digging into it, talking to more customers, we realize that we could change this process so that we not only do do what we need to do for compliance, but we actually can help our customers build systems that are even more secure if we change the process, move things further to the left. And so I think that's partly what I, has helped us is you know rethinking how we go about designing our systems using the agile process, of course, but making sure that human-centered design is an essential part and parcel of what we do and how we do. All right, I'm going to ask everyone to hold up because I think that is a great segue for the next segment when we jump knee deep into the discussion around DevSecOps. Rajiv, you teed us up perfectly. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. You're listening to the panel discussion, Simplifying Technology Platforms and Systems in Government, sponsored by ServiceNow on Federal News Network. This past year saw the digitization of government service massively accelerated. The goal of digital transformation is deliver intuitive, efficient, and secure services to employees and citizens. ServiceNow delivers cloud-based service management and operation solutions built on the Now platform. ServiceNow helps federal IT leaders gain greater visibility into systems and data to reimagine work within their agency, foster best practices, and develop a faster, better way to achieve their mission. Learn more. Visit servicenow.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the panel discussion, Simplifying Technology Platforms and Systems in Government, sponsored by ServiceNow on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Lauren Knausenberger, the Chief Information Officer for the Department of the Air Force, Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of IT and CIO for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Jeff Maloney, the Head of IT Operations for Product and Solutions Marketing at ServiceNow. In the last segment, we started talking about this idea of inventorying your applications, understanding what you have, and adopting processes and process reform. And Rajiv, you mentioned something about moving to the left, getting as much to the left, security, user-centered design. And a lot of that just talks to me talks to me about DevSecOps and this push that we've seen over the last few years. So let me start actually with Lauren on this one, because the Air Force has been really a leader in DevSecOps. Where are you today with it? What, cha- what are the benefits you're seeing? And how does this kind of fit into this low-code, no-code discussion? Absolutely. So, um, so yes, um, DevSecOps has definitely, um, you know, taken off in the Air Force. I mentioned earlier, uh, kind of the proliferation of software factories, and uh, got to give Kessel Run a lot of credit for kind of starting that revolution. And of course, I'm here from the Millennium Falcon today. Um, you know, of course, uh, well related to our Kessel Run brethren. Um, but really, um, you know, Kessel Run was the original continuous ATO, the whole bake security in from the beginning, um, so that by the time you have developed the software and put it through the CI/CD pipeline, which is also kind of a household word, word now in the Air Force, um, amazingly, um, you know, that you are ready for that code to go into production. And, uh, and really, we've just gone up from there. So, uh, so we have Kessel Run con- continuing to add value, you know, all over the world uh, for, for our warfighters. Um, and then uh, Platform One has been a huge add because now any development team can pretty much show up to Platform One and they have a few different business models depending on how much help the team wants and um, just kind of how, how different their requirements might be. Um, but we can have a development team show up they can onboard into platform one and within a couple of weeks, they can be pushing their first application to a production environment with an ATO. And, um, and in government, that's really huge. Um, actually not in government, that's even huge. You know, we've had, um, we've had corporations kind of say, hey, you know, this is so inspiring. If the biggest bureaucracy in the world can do it, then so can we. I'm telling my CIO, darn it, we need to be like the Air Force. And so, um, so that's all just incredible. And um, a lot of it is tying together, you know, we're, we're mostly using open source products in, um, you know, in our platforms as much as we can. But we also have some really incredible commercial partners that are, um, that are helping us to integrate, helping us to build new code every day. Um, 
And so, um, you know, and we're constantly working to, to get better with our security practices too. So I do think that, um, I do think that that DevSecOps platform um, and the processes there is, is kind of the ultimate tool for democratization because in, it's a lot harder to start developing meaningful code if you first have to build your own cloud environment and then build your own DevSecOps stack and then wait a year to get it all accredited while you teach everyone how to code and then you can go. And then even after that, probably someone has to accredit your application. And so um, really the path here has been build those common platforms where we have our best industry partners working side by side with our airmen, literally most of the time doing paired programming, even in a virtual environment, constantly learning from each other and sharing best practices and deploying awesome applications for our warfighters. Rajiv, talk a little bit about where CMS is with DevSecOps. Are you, I know it's, it's never beginning, middle or end, but are you starting to use it more? Because I know like SSA, CMS has had the uh, reputation or the perception that you did a lot of stuff in-house and it was all mainframe or legacy. I think that's changed, but tell us how it's changed. Yeah, th thank you, Jason. Yes, it's definitely changing quite a bit. And to your point, we have legacy applications that are, we are in the process of migrating to the cloud and we are actually following where, as Lauren was saying, the Air Force's lead. We are just with creating systems uh, like Platform One and the DevSecOps so that you know, we don't have people going off, they're building their own DevSecOps and building their, their pipelines, all of that stuff. We want people to focus on their applications as opposed to focusing on the infrastructure. Uh, it also helps us reduce uh, just the, you know, every, every, if you get a new commercial vendor partner to come help us build a system, if they build their own infrastructure and then build the application, you now end up with you know, proliferation of many different kinds of infrastructure and you don't want that either. So we are actually following very much in the same path as the Air Force uh, is. So thank you, thank you very much, Lauren. You guys have done an awesome job. Thanks, Rajiv. Rajiv, real quick, do you get a sense of, are you 10% of your applications are being put through the, the CICD pipeline, 40%, 100%, do you get a sense yet? I think uh, we are um, about on the lower end right now, but there's a fairly significant uptick and on people moving in that direction. Uh, just in the past year or so, we moved close to about anywhere between 50 and 60 applications to the cloud. So there's a significant number of applications moving and they're now all all wanting the same thing. They want us to put together the infrastructure for them so they don't have to build those things again and again. So I think uh, we have a pretty significant momentum on our side. Jeff, jump in here and talk a little bit about what are some of the, the if you will, challenges, mistakes, good things you're seeing uh, that as, as agencies are building out, as Lauren and, and Rajiv described, this, this automated workflow, the CICD pipeline, moving things to the left. Yeah, yeah, we, um, it is a, in a vast majority of conversations that we have with our clients. So from a security angle, obviously we take security as an extreme priority for our organization because we're a cloud provider and the applications that we have that our you know, clients use. But from the tools that we use, we see all the topics that Lauren and Rajiv were talking about, shift left, CIDC pipeline, DevSecOps, in more and more conversations. And you wouldn't historically see that with uh, a company like ServiceNow, right? Because we have packaged IT management applications. But we've completely shifted our organization to really support that kind of upfront, that build, that code, those development phases to ensure that we can keep the speed of the businesses that we work with go flowing through so that when they build their digital products and their applications and their services, either on or off platform, we manage that speed, but we can also manage the scale and security aspects of it. Like we talked about earlier is we have the security checks that we can understand as somebody's building off platform by taking that information from CIDC pipeline tools, put that in our application to understand things like policy. So we can run a policy engine to understand if things are secure we can understand the configurations of those applications to make sure those applications are secure. So that way, when things get into production, hopefully we've achieved regime sort of shift left phenomenon and, and stop those things from happening. But what's also important is things just happen to get into production environments. So we see a big 
push as well on using artificial intelligence to understand and predict events that are going to happen before they happen through things like health log analytics so that we understand hey is an anomaly happening in the in the system right now how can we capture that up front so the citizens or the end users don't necessarily see the impact of that we can capture it before it happens i think you bring up a very interesting point of see it before it happens understand the well if we do this this is what the result could be so let's fix it on the front end i think it goes back to what rajiv was talking about with user experience and what lauren was talking about with this idea of shifting left the the capability discussion so so nothing's out there um a lot of this goes back to the workforce piece too then because the workforce has got to understand why they're shifting left why it matters not just speed for capabilities not just because we have to get this to the warfighter more quickly or to the field more quickly to, to help with medicare and medicaid services but understand that these are all parts of it so uh, i'll just open up to the group the, the workforce piece something rajiv brought up in the beginning um how are you ensuring your workforce is ready for for this shift left Hi, this was you. So I'll I can take that first if that's okay. So as I was saying earlier, Jason, that we we feel very strongly that for us to be effective at all the systems that we're putting out and to be addressing the needs of the, our beneficiaries and the providers, that we need to take our federal staff and make sure that they have the skills to that they need for them to be able to manage and build these new kinds of systems that we are creating. So we've launched a, what we call it the Workforce Resilience Program, which essentially focuses uh, to begin with on at least four tracks. And those four tracks are human-centered design, product management, the, the cloud, and uh, cybersecurity. These are the first four, of course, many more to follow. And the idea here is uh, providing people with not just tracks and courses that need, they would take, but also um, after they're done with the courses, providing them with a support system of communities of practice, and then pairing them up with projects. So if I've, let's say, gone through a training session for human-centered design, after I'm done, if I can pair up with, a, if I can be paired up with a project where I can either shadow somebody or be mentored by somebody, while doing human-centered design for, the, for a given project, it just helps me solidify all the things I've learned. So that's sort of the path we are taking to help ensure that we're building a workforce that is resilient because as we know, technology is constantly gonna change and how do we take our workforce and build, you know, give them the capability to be able to shift and pivot as the needs change. I love it, Rajiv. And I love that that was one of the first topics that you brought up because, you know, we can have the greatest tech stack in the world, but, you know, if we don't have, you know, the right, uh, you know, in our, in our force, you know, the right digital airmen and guardians, um, you know, then, then they're not able to leverage it, um, you know, to the full capability. Um, the good news is a lot of the folks that are coming in now that are joining the military, they're digital natives, like they are so savvy. You know, the bigger problem actually with them is we have to equip them with modern tools so that they can be as, you know, as just dangerous ninjas as they can be. Um, but we're also doing a lot to educate our senior leaders um, so that we can all make better decisions. And um, General Brown, um, our, our new, our relatively new Air Force Chief of Staff, has been so incredible at this. And it's and at each of our senior level discussions, you know, up to the four star general level, um, we've had educational components. And so um, General O'Brien, um, our Intel general, recently educated all of our commanders on AI um, in a thirty about a thirty minute session, um, and the dialogue was awesome. Um, we did kind of a deep dive into uh, cloud and edge technologies and, and kind of how we're running all the way up the tech stack. And I was thrilled to hear this morning from our vice chief of staff that, um, that the analogy that I made to help explain cloud and edge using my Tesla completely as an example um, was one that really resonated with him. And a couple of the senior leaders were saying, oh, I understand the edge now. Um, and so, you know, just making it really accessible and then of course, Digital U is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, that's our online digital platform to democratize access to best in class technologies. So all of those training as a service vendors that you love, you know, you can get through uh, Digital U. 
then gamifying the experience. So folks like Platform One and Kessel Run can say, if you earn this badge, then you can come code on my platform, or we want to interview you for a job on our team. Um, they can actually signal the whole market so that you know our, our uh, formal personnel folks can say, you know what, there's something going on here. I uh, think we might need to build this into our career path if our best developers are saying, this is the way of the future. And then of course, operationalizing all of that data so that we can see who are those awesome ninjas. So the next time something happens and we need someone who can code in Python and really knows how to visualize data, that we can just go and easily see, you know, hey, these guys are at the top of the leaderboard. General Brown needs you, um, and uh, you know, hey, we're going to pull you into the fight. So, so that's pretty exciting. And uh, we even actually uh, this week we'll finalize a a uh, two star general course, completely done through Digital U, um, to kind of do the all right. Here's the words of here's the words of tech. Learn that vocabulary. And in the test group with the Space Force, um, a couple of the folks at the kernel level came back and they were like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that's what they meant when they were talking about this." And so you know we're going to have this whole new group of people that maybe thought that they understood something a little better than they did, or maybe understood it in a different way, but now that are gonna be 100% part of the conversation and driving the decisions with all of that great operational capability throughout a whole career. Um, and so I think that's gonna be incredibly powerful. Yeah, Lauren and Jeff, I love how you're kind of equaling the playing field these days with people that know technology, <laughs> that sort of raised in technology, maybe those that aren't. We we do a lot of those capabilities at ServiceNow through a consistent program we call Now Create. So. For example, what our teams leverage to go help implement at organizations, they have the same education and learning that our partners have around the world that help deliver our solutions on our behalf and have the same education and learning that your organizations and agencies can have and all of our clients have access to. So we, in essence, you know, level the playing field for our internal folks, our partners and resellers, as well as our clients that use our software. And so it goes back to the earlier conversation we asked where, hey, how do we know we're doing the right processes during an implementation, right? We have a lot of that out of the box. But when we do need to do those configurations, now our organizations have access to understand how to properly create those configurations within the system. So that way, when we do upgrades later on down the line, everything is all fantastic. So it's great that you're doing that from an education perspective, similar to how we're doing it from an education perspective. All right. On that note, we're going to have to say goodbye. This has been a fascinating conversation, but unfortunately, we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guests. Lauren Knausenberger is the Chief Information Officer for the Department of the Air Force. Rajiv Upal is the director of the Office of IT and CIO for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And Jeff Maloney is the head of IT operations for product and solutions marketing at ServiceNow. Lauren, Rajiv, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to the panel discussion, Simplifying Technology Platforms and Systems in Government, sponsored by ServiceNow on Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search ServiceNow. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Simplifying Technology Platforms and Systems in Government, sponsored by ServiceNow on Federal News Network.